Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups and From John to Justin, available on all podcast platforms. Today I'm talking with Crawford Killian who wrote the book, Go Do Some Great Thing. It's a book about the black pioneers who settled in British Columbia and the various things that they did to help shape the future province. There's some really interesting characters, some amazing stories, and I really recommend this book. So let's get right to the interview. What kind of inspired you to write uh, Go Do Some Great uh, Thing? Well, I was looking around for possible episodes in BC history that I might write a uh, children's textbook on and because uh, I'd done one or two of those before and I, I ran across just a throwaway mention of the black pioneers in BC in a, in a standard history of the province and I, I sort of thought wait what black people <laughs> up in BC this was in the mid 1970s okay and, and uh, one didn't see very many black people here so I, I dug into it, and the more I dug, the better the story got, and the more amazing the people were. And uh, uh, finally, I decided there, there had to be a straight nonfiction book here. Uh, and uh, a local publisher expressed interest, and we were off to the races. So that was and that was 42 years ago <laughs> when it first came out. Um- why do you feel we don't know enough about the black pioneers of British Columbia? <clears throat> I think it was mostly just a matter of, first of all, forgetting our own past uh, or relegating it to, uh, you know, a few old guys with funny beards and uh, old fashioned clothes, you know, who supposedly did something uh, a long time ago. <laughs> we, we just don't think much about historical perspectives. Uh, but when you get into it, when you when you see how, let me well I should explain, explain this first of all, the Crown Colony of Vancouver Island, as it was in 1858, was administratively separate from the mainland, which didn't become part of the 
province of British Columbia until a little later. It, the the colony knew that it was sort of responsible for for what was going on on the mainland. And uh, the governor, Sir James Douglas, knew that gold had been discovered along the Fraser. And he knew that meant Americans would be flooding up from California in huge numbers pretty soon. And he had a couple of hundred Europeans, and that was it, in, in Victoria, and scattered up and down the island. You know, there was... And he had seen in his own career uh, the Americans move from uh, east to west all the way to the Pacific Ocean and just take over everything they came to. And he could well imagine that that was going to happen to him. So he needed some kind of ballast, some kind of counterweight to the Americans he knew he would be getting. And there was no way he'd get enough British subjects, you know, in place in any good time. But here was a community of black people in San Francisco, and the Supreme Court itself had just declared that they could never be American citizens, uh, even if they had been born free. So he figured, okay, these people will have to do, and um, he invited them to come up and and, uh, take a look around. They sent a committee up. The committee reported back, this is a great place, a God-sent land for the colored man. And... uh, about six to eight hundred people migrated up the coast uh, in the spring and summer of 1858, uh, and they formed a sizable proportion of the of the colony's population. That made them important right there. The Americans who who came up with them and and during that whole period tended to flow through Victoria. They were they would stop there, rest up. Uh, buy supplies and head over uh, to the mainland to look for gold. Most of the black population stayed put and they they had jobs, they opened businesses, uh, they were very active in the local community. So they provided Douglas with the ballast he needed and uh, I think in the long run it, it helped a lot. But after the Civil War, Many uh, of the black pioneers figured, well, we didn't get everything we were really promised here. And uh, now reconstruction is going on in the States. We can go back and have you know, proper lives as, as American citizens. So they left and uh, just a, a small number of black remained in, in, in uh, British Columbia. And they became a regularly smaller proportion of the population uh, never seen as as a threat to the majority whites uh, that you know there was a lot of racism aimed at the Chinese and the Japanese but uh, not so much to uh, to the black population so they were essentially just forgotten one of the more interesting parts of the book I found was the story of Salt Spring Island and the impact that the yeah. uh, the black pioneers had on, had on the island. Um, was the research yes. of stuff like that, was it difficult at times? Uh, was it difficult to find the material? Yeah, to do the or research to, to find you know, the no, story of these a, people. There's, there's quite a bit of material there uh, on, on, the, on the settlers. And Salt Spring was a kind of... Uh, Plan B, the the governor in uh, Victoria 
could see that a lot of people were coming back broke from uh, the gold fields. They just hadn't made their fortune and they didn't have enough money to get home. So uh, they decided, let's settle some of these people on Salisbury and they can form a little kind of farm community to supply the, the uh, Victoria with uh, vegetables and so on, livestock. <clears throat> and uh, some blacks were among the first people just to settle on the island uh, under what was called preemption. You could take over a piece of, of crown land and as long as you stayed on it and you improved it in five years, it was yours. And uh, so the, the, the black settlers got some of the best land on the island and uh, were followed by others. There was then a terrible winter in 1861, 62, uh, which drove out many of the settlers, but the blacks stayed put, even though it was pretty tough. And they ended up, uh, as a result, uh, doing doing pretty well. They, they then found that uh, uh, <laughs> some people wanted their land, and there were a couple of very mysterious murders of black settlers yes. <laughs> that seemed to be uh, aimed at uh, getting possession of, of their particular land. But there were also some remarkable uh, families like the Starks who uh, settled on the island, uh, raised a family, and uh, uh, Sylvia Stark, who arrived as a as a very pregnant young mother with two toddlers already, uh, ended up uh, dying at, I think it was 106 in 1944. <laughs> and she was just the matriarch of the island. And something else that was kind of interesting about uh, Salt Spring was that it never worked out as a kind of a farm colony for Victoria. Uh, it was almost a kind of proto-hippie settlement <laughs> where the people who settled there were quite happy to stay at subsistence farm levels, most of them. Some did better, obviously, but uh, they just wanted to be left alone. And I suspect that the black settlers were among them. You know, they took care of themselves. They were very tough and resilient and resourceful, but uh, they were not much interested in the rest of the province or the rest of the world. Um, speaking of some of the people, uh, you, you mentioned a couple, but uh, people like uh, Mifflin Wistar Gibbs, were there other yeah. people who kind of really stood out for you uh, as kind of notable characters in the tale of the Black Pioneers? Well, certainly uh, Mifflin Gibbs was uh, the most notable of them. He had uh, come up a little late in, in June of 1858 and immediately began making a fortune. He was... he. Opened up the first store that ever competed with the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, which had owned all of Western, you know, Canada for a long time. And uh, then he began to uh, invest in real estate, and he did extremely well there. Uh, he ended up, among other things, building a, a coal mine and a tramway uh, on Haida Gwaii to provide uh, coal for Victoria. And uh, he was the first black elected city council member in Victoria. Uh, and he then left the, the, the province, went back to the States and became uh, uh, a judge in Little Rock, Arkansas, a banker and 
a diplomat. He was sent in his 70s to Madagascar as a U.S. consul. Uh, and he put up with that for a couple of years and then excused himself. That was quite enough for an old guy. So he was a, he was a remarkable man. But there were others. Uh, uh, there was... Um, uh, uh, <clears throat> there were the Jones brothers, for example, who had all been brought up in Oberlin, Ohio. Their father, a blacksmith, had seen them all through Oberlin College, which was the only school in North America then that accepted black students. And three of the brothers had come to British Columbia. Uh, two became very prominent miners in Barkerville. One also had a sideline as a dentist. He was known as Painless Jones. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Meanwhile, uh, another brother settled on Salt Spring and uh, taught the kids on the island uh, free, for you know, no, at no cost and no, and without being paid, for about five years before the settlers finally shamed the provincial government into into paying him something, because he'd been tramping up and down the island for those years, you know, just to just to provide some sort of education for the kids. So there were some some very remarkable people, indeed, in the in the in the among the black pioneers. Um, one of the stories I really enjoyed was uh, when you were talking about the black pioneers being a political force, and Gibbs running for city council, and um, mm -hmm. uh, as most to Cosmos running against him, and the things that he did yeah. to try and make sure that Gibbs was not elected. Um, what kind of force were the were the black pioneers towards politics in early, uh, especially obviously Victoria? Yeah, <clears throat> uh, Sir James Douglas had promised them that if they stayed for I think three years or something, they and became property owners, they could have the vote, which was a huge attraction for them. Uh, but when it finally came to it, and uh, the uh, colonial council was up for election. Uh, it was a little problematic whether the all the blacks who voted were entirely qualified to, and they were very pro Douglas, as you might imagine. And uh, Amor de Cosmos, who was then uh, a newspaper editor and would later become the premier, was very much in the reform faction who thought old square toes James Douglas was a hopeless reactionary and would uh, really have to be replaced with some more go-ahead types. So the uh, Cosmos and the black community kind of got in each other's way and the uh, Cosmos got pretty nasty about it in this newspaper and uh, Mifflin Gibbs wrote back and gave him as good as he got. Uh, and and it was it was quite a kerfuffle. But you have to understand in those days also it was an open ballot. Mm -hmm. You marched in and you told the the returning officer who you who, who you were casting your vote for. And they were, everyone was keeping track, and they would go out and roust out somebody else if the, if the race was getting close, come and vote for so and so, and so forth. So it was a, it was a bit of an uproar, and it did cause some some ill feeling I think on both sides. Um, and then looking at, um, obviously, when we look at uh, uh, black pioneers coming up, we tend to obviously realize that there was racism, but they didn't face as much as they did in the United States. But in your book, uh, one of the kind of most telling aspects of the racism was the uh, the issue over the church and the integration of the, the church. 
Um, this was fairly early on, and it was uh, kind of typical of the, the sort of passive-aggressive racism that the blacks encountered here, uh, as opposed to the straight in-your-face uh, we hate you. <laughs> they they got in the U.S., so they were you know they were technically welcome and so forth. And there was no there was certainly no segregation in in housing. People lived where they could afford, and you know, uh, blacks, whites, Chinese were all living on the same street, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, they very much wanted to avoid setting up their own church. They wanted to have integrated uh, religious services. Uh, some of the local churches uh, turned them away. One did not, but some of the parishioners, some of the white parishioners, complained uh, about having the blacks in the same pews with them and so on. Mm-hmm. So uh, that turned into, into quite a kerfuffle. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it it was finally sorted out, but uh, no one was very happy with the result. You know, the church did not do very well, and uh, the uh, black uh, pioneers kind of drifted off to other churches. In some cases, when they moved out of uh, Victoria into Saanich, for example, they did build churches, but they again were integrated ones. Mm-hmm. You know, all the settlers in the in the in the Saanich neighborhood would attend that church. And um, can you talk a bit about the uh, the all black militia unit that kind of served as like the the yeah. only line of defense for Victoria <clears throat> at times? Yes, it was. Uh, it was uh, in some ways uh, a reaction. To the fact that they'd formed a vo- Victoria had formed a volunteer fire department, and they excluded blacks. It was whites only, so the blacks said, "All right, uh, let's let's form a militia." Because there was no real defense for the colony. There was a, a few Royal Navy Marines. You know, there was a, a naval base at Esquimalt, but it was nothing like uh, you know a real fortress, and. Uh, so they decided, with the with the governor's blessing, that they would start this militia unit, and uh, they hired a, a marine sergeant from the navy to drill them, and they got uniforms. They looked as professional as any other 1860s North American military unit, uh, and uh, they carried on for for a couple of years. But when Douglas left. Uh, and the new new governor came in. Uh, there was going to be a parade uh, to welcome him, of various you know community groups and so on. And uh, the African Rifles wanted to join, and were told no, you can't. And they had also been pretty effectively kept from from training with with serious rifles. So uh, so that was a bit of a drawback too. So the African Rifles eventually. Uh, disbanded simply because there was no more official support for them still they were there and uh they were quite prepared when there was some friction between uh, the u.s and britain over what was called the pig war on san juan island mm-hmm. uh, they were prepared to uh stand up to uh you know the american army if it should invade 
It would have been quite a fight. <laughs> it would have been, absolutely. Um, yeah. For people reading the book, what do you hope they get out of uh, learning about the history of the Black Pioneers? Uh, I hope they can see that, uh, first of all, they were remarkable people. You know, mm -hmm. to have come 3,000 miles, some of them, across the United States and be hated on sight by every white person who saw them practically mm -hmm. uh, and still to to get to the west coast and then to come up to a new country and do as well as they did was a pretty remarkable achievement and it called for a lot of skill and brains and character so that was part of it uh, also they i think they did play a key part in not only preserving western canada for canada uh, Mifflin Gibbs was one of the, uh, you might call him a sort of a stepfather of Confederation because he was in the Yale Convention, which was a political meeting that hammered out the terms under which British Columbia would join the Confederation, mm -hmm. which happened in 1871, you know, four years after the original Confederation. So uh, he had a say in that, and that was important. So they were there. They helped form the foundations for BC and therefore for Canada. And uh, then they, they, you know, they carried on. And the ones who stayed kind of got on with their lives. They put up with some discrimination for sure. But in uh, to a great extent, they could simply carry on and live fairly ordinary lives. Mm -hmm. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month, just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy McCallum, Diane Wade, Lori Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bardo37. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.